Uh, I'm going to get us right into um, God's word. We are going to be in Luke's gospel. Chapter 17, just picking up where we left off. If you were here last week, uh, we've just kind of slowly been making our way through the gospel of Luke. And uh, Luke chapter 17, uh, last week we looked at verses 1 through 4. This week we're diving into 5 and 6. Um, so if you need a Bible, raise your hand, we'll get one to you. But if you have a Bible or an app on your phone, feel free to open it now. Um, I'm going to read it, pray, and uh, we'll dive in. But it's Luke chapter 17, verses 5 through 6. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Let's pray. God, I was reading in Psalm 119 this last week. And in the unfolding of your words, there is light. That as we dive into the scriptures and we don't just touch at them for a moment and go off onto our own ideas and thoughts, but we dig there. We dive in there. We unfold things there. We uncover things there. There is light that starts to shine through the darkness. Light breaks in and leads the way. And God, so even now at the outset of this sermon and our time in your word, I'm praying that you would make that psalm true here for us, that as we get into the scriptures together, it would be as if the sun is rising over this place. And those of us who were perhaps this past week, this past month, maybe even this past year dwelling in darkness, we would find ourselves in morning's light. And the glory that radiates from the face of Jesus Christ would be seen by us. His voice would be heard by us. Clearly, God, these are things that are not within my power to accomplish. That's why we begin with prayer. You have to do it. You're the one who, when the earth, when the universe and all and the world was formless and void, said, let there be light and light came forth. You're the one who opens the eyes of the blind. You're the one who softens hardens, hardened hearts. You're the one who can take our time in scripture and make it come alive. Use it to save, use it to strengthen and sustain your saints. God, would you do that? I pray.
pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, let me begin uh, this way. Um, I often bring out this reality, uh, but I feel like it's relevant to what we see here in this text. And so I want to make note of it again. Um, even as we open the scriptures right now uh, to read and study and hear from God I wonder if you realize that there is, in fact, in these moments, an unseen war waging all around us. I'm not talking about the war that you see between Fox News and other news channels. I'm not talking about the war you see going on downtown over this or that issue. I'm talking about an unseen war that's taking place in this room right now for yours and my souls. There is an enemy of our soul who wants nothing more than to see us disengaged, uh, dismantled, and ultimately destroyed. The devil, we're told, has been a, a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He parades around like an angel of light, while truly he is, as the scriptures would say, a prowling lion, uh, a fierce dragon, a venomous snake. This is happening in the spiritual dimension in this room right now. He's coming after you and me. And this war, while it is certainly immediate and pressing and current and more relevant than whatever else you've come in here thinking about this morning, it is at the same time as old as Eden. And what I mean by that is (laughs) the devil has been doing the same thing. He's been waging the same kind of war since day one. His strategy hasn't shifted much. He's been on the same sort of track since the Garden of Eden, since the serpent came towards Eve and uttered those words. Genesis 3, 1, did God actually say? When that's where the whole thing started, God gives a word to Adam and Eve. The devil gets in the mix and says, did God really say that? Does he really mean that? Is he going to make good on that? The devil's warfare is centered in, zeroed in on the word of God. The battle wages around the issue of whether God's word is true, whether he can be trusted, whether he is good, or whether you better go with your own instincts and intuitions on this one and put God on the shelf because you see reality better. That's what the devil is doing. That's what he's always done. And I have no doubt as we open up the scriptures again in his word, he's doing that right now. Did God actually say? In other words, I suppose what I'm trying to get at in opening this way is 
that this war raging right now or waging right now for yours and my soul is at bottom what the scriptures would call a fight for faith. It's a fight for faith in God and his word over and against the world, the flesh and the devil. Did God actually say, yes, he did. It's a fight for faith. I wonder if you feel it. I wonder if you've ever been where the apostles are in our text this morning. Uh, if you look back up in verses 1 through 4, and I briefly alluded to this uh, as a connection point last time, but you'll notice Jesus just got done. There's a reason why in verse 5 they say, increase our faith. They just got done hearing from Jesus about this call, this radical call to forgive over and over and over again. This overwhelming sense of, wait, are you, are you serious? Did I hear you right? You look back up in verse 4 and you see Jesus say this. If your brother sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And we did work last time to say that even seven times in a day is not the literal uppermost limit to which you have to forgive. And then on the eighth, you get to just kind of cross them off your life, right? No, it's, it's, it's symbolic. It's metaphoric of a lifestyle that just is radical in forgiveness. But imagine this with me seven times you sin against me. I forgive you. You sin against me again an hour later. I forgive you. You sin against me another time. Same day. I forgive you. Fourth time. Are you kidding me? I forgive you. You sin against me fifth time. I forgive you. You sin against me sixth time. I forgive you. You sin against me seventh time. I forgive you. And that's just day one. (laughs) We wake up tomorrow and we start all over again. Forgiveness. Radical. Overwhelming. So these apostles hear this kind of limitless mercy and forgiveness. They're called to show to others, even those who have grievously offended them time and time again. And they respond, I think, rightly with the words of verse five. Increase our faith. In other words. I can't do that. I don't have the ability to, to walk that out. That's not in me, Lord. I'll tell you what's in me. When people sin against me, when they hurt me grievously, I want to nurse bitterness. That's what I want to do. Or I want to take vengeance and, and make sure that my name is clear, that they get paid back for what they did. That's what's in me. I want to unfriend them on Facebook or block them from my, you know, my phone or, or change jobs or churches so I don't have to see them again. That's what's in me. Forgive seven times in a day ad nauseum. If I'm going to get there, you're going to have to increase my faith. If that's the word coming to me 
from the Savior, the call. If God is actually saying that (laughs) and actually calling me into that, my goodness, I need help with my faith. So again, I wonder if you've ever been with these apostles here. Um, If you ever heard God's word to you and thought, okay, I hear what you're saying, uh, but I'm really struggling to believe it. I can read the words, I understand the words, but is my heart wrapping around it for joy? I'm not so sure. I'm kind of standing back looking at the words going, did God really say that? Isn't there some way I can wiggle out of that? Is that really what he's meaning? Or is that really what he's up to? Is this actually the truth? That sort of thing. I, I wonder if you've opened the scriptures. Let me give you a few examples. And maybe you hear God say through Paul, Romans 8.28, a beloved verse. For those who love him, love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So you maybe do your little morning devotion. You're opening up your Bible like a good Christian. You'd come to Romans 8.28 and you hear God say, listen, if you're my kid, no matter what comes your way, no matter how painful it feels, I am up to good in it. And you just you step back from the book and you go. You look at the broken heap that's become of your life. And you think. Not this. Not this. There's no way this is good for me, Lord. There's no way you're doing something good in the midst of this mess. Another lost job? Are you kidding me? Another deceased loved one? Are you kidding me? Another heart-wrenching breakup, another unfavorable diagnosis, another shattered dream. I'm just looking at the dream on the floor in pieces, and I read this in the book. Come on, did God actually say? Right? Says he's up to good in this. I feel like he's, he's out to get me. I feel like he's abandoned me. I feel like he's hurting me. Fight for faith in those moments. You open up the scriptures and you hear God say through the psalmist, like um, something like in Psalm 19, verses 9 through 11. Listen to this. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be, now bear in mind, we're talking about rules here. We're talking about law here. (laughs) More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. The psalmist looks at the rules of God and says, man, I love them. They're so good. They're precious, valuable, sweet, rewarding. There's life there. And you read this in the book and you step back. Did God actually say that? 
Because I'll tell you, I'm watching all my friends on campus or whatever sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend. And I kind of want to do the same thing. That's what they're doing on TV. That's what everyone's doing. And then I open up the book and I see God's rule, his sweet and precious rule. Say, no, doesn't feel sweet and precious to me. I'm at, I, you know, I, I, there's this coworker, this girl at work and. It's nice kind of flirting with her. Maybe we'll see where it goes. But I'm married. Okay. I know that God's rules say no, but you don't know what my marriage is like. And you don't know how the difficulties there. And it's not my fault that I'm drawn to this. If she would give me this, maybe I wouldn't do. God's rules say no. Or perhaps relevant to this month in particular, maybe. Man, I, I have struggled with homosexual inclinations since puberty. I'm watching National Coming Out Day or whatever and all the celebrations and the culture rallying around this lifestyle. That I wish I could live. I don't want to do that. I want to be out and proud. And I even see some churches picking up anchor from the scriptures and following with the culture on this. But I know in my honest moments, when I read the scripture, when I think about it, when I pray, God and his lovely rules say, no, it's something else for me. that That's not the right way to go. I tell you. You read the psalm here and you look at your life and those rules aren't necessarily feeling sweet in that moment. Right? They're not feeling valuable, more valuable than fine gold. Woo! Now it feels like they're taking stuff from me. Like, like, like if God really loved me, what would be really sweet would be him saying, go get it, son. Yes. Not no. When you become a parent, if you're not already, it takes a minute. It just takes a moment to to recognize true love often says no. And oftentimes behind the constant yes isn't a love for your kid, but a love for yourself. Because saying yes makes it easier for the moment, makes them like you a little bit more in the moment, whatever it may be. True love, a lot of times, it's going to look and say no. But you're going to wrestle. Did God actually say that there's pleasure for me in this? Is this really going to be rewarding? Pushing against the culture and against my flesh and against it. It's going to be a fight for faith. So I wonder if you've ever been there. You open up the book and you read and you come away saying, if that's true, Lord, if that's what you're doing, if that's what you're calling me to do, if that's where this is going, increase my faith. Because it's not in me. I don't have it. Well, again, all this is introduction. You're welcome. <laughs> I tend to have some introductions that are as long as other churches' sermons. I'm sorry. You're welcome. 
you get two sermons for the, the same price. Uh, that's what these next two sermons are going to be about. Um, under this banner of the plea of the apostles here, increase our faith. We're going to look at four things. Uh, first, the nature of faith. Second, the gift of faith. Third, the effect of faith. And then four, the humility of faith. I'm going to take up the first two this morning in particular, the nature of faith and the gift of faith. So first, the nature of faith. It occurs to me, um, I think, that before we can really deal with this idea of, Lord, increase my faith, we need to have at least a sense of what faith actually is. What is it, biblically speaking? I wonder if you had an unbelieving friend come up to you and say, hey, what in the world is faith? Is it just kind of a step in the dark? What, what would you, how would you fill that out? How would you define, how would you talk about the nature of faith? Now, for this, we obviously could go, and maybe some of you familiar with your Bibles would say, oh yeah, he's going to go to Hebrews 11. And we could do that. Hebrews 11, actually, the author there gives us a definition of what faith is when he says this faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen it in particular grabs a hold of the word of God and the one whom the word reveals to us and it says yes and amen it's a conviction that those things are real and the assurance of those things even though you can't fully see he's up to good in Romans eight twenty eight. you look at your life you go I'm on it. I believe it I'm there faith right so we could look at that definition and unpack it further, but I actually wanted to do something else. Um, I have found it helpful. Um, the there's this threefold uh, kind of definition that emerged at the time of the Reformation. So 16th century, uh, big stuff going on with Catholics and then the emerging kind of Protestant movement. And there's this need to kind of define what faith is what it was. Um, and I'll read you a little bit more as to why. But they came up with, these reformers came up with this threefold kind of distinction to, uh, definition to this, uh, this idea of faith. And really it, it will fill out in many ways what, what we read there in Hebrews 11, 1 anyways. Um, kind of take it a little further, maybe make it a little clearer. So I wanted to give this to you. Now for this, I'm actually just going to simply kind of draw from a guy by the name of R.C. Sproul. He's now deceased, amazing theologian. If you're familiar with his ministry at all, here's what, here's what you experience when you hang out or when you watch or whatever R.C. Sproul. Um, he takes these incredibly lofty truths that you and I have no business thinking about. He plucks it from the tree, you know, the ivory tower or whatever, and he brings it down to the ground for the common folk like you and me to enjoy. And so I am indebted to R.C. Sproul on this and just simply wanted to read a little bit from him and then I'll try to summarize. This is what he says. Remember, we're trying to make our way towards a definition of faith. He writes, I think the whole concept of faith is one of the most misunderstood ideas that we have. Misunderstood not only by the world, but by the church itself. The very basis for our redemption, the way in which we are justified by God, is through faith. The Bible is constantly talking to us about faith, and if we misunderstand that, we're in deep trouble. The great issue of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century was, how is a person justified? Luther's controversial position was that we are justified by faith Alone. When he said that, many of the godly leaders in the Roman Catholic Church were very upset. 
They said, does that mean that a person can just believe in Jesus and then any, live any way that they want to live? In other words, the Roman Catholic Church reacted fiercely because they were afraid that Luther's view would be understood as an easy believism in which a person only had to believe and never had to be concerned about bringing forth the fruits of righteousness. It was crucial, therefore, that those who were involved in the Protestant Reformation carefully define what they meant by saving faith. So they went back and did their studies in the New Testament, specifically on the Greek word pistain, which means to believe. And they were able to isolate three distinctive aspects of biblical faith. And that's what I want to simply summarize for you now before we move further. Three aspects forged in the cauldron of the Reformation. Here's what we see. Aspect number one. I'm going to give you the Latin word just to make me sound smarter, but I have no idea what these words mean. Uh, and then I'll give you a word that makes sense to all of us. Aspect number one says Latin word um, noticia. So they talked about, okay, first... When we understand biblical faith, there's this idea of notitia. Now, for us, we would sum it up with the word content. We could sum it up with the word content. Here's the idea that faith actually has an object. Okay? That there is something that we are attaching our faith to. It is faith in something or someone. It doesn't just float out here somewhere or like a little feeling in your belly. Like, I just got faith. No, it's faith that, that has content to it. It attaches to something, in particular to God, His Word, His Son. Alright? This is what Paul is getting at when he writes in Romans 10, verse 14. He says this, How... Will they call on him, God, in whom they have not believed? There's the faith idea. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Now we're getting to this idea of content. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And he gets really clear down in verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You hear that? You're not going to have faith if you don't have the word of Christ. If you don't have content, there's no biblical faith. It's not just this kind of happy feeling that you have when you watch Disney movies or whatever. It's, I hear the words of God, and I attach to those. But we'll see more about what that attachment means. But the first thing that's required here is this idea of content. The Word of God, the Gospel, and really through that, we kind of come to know the person of Jesus Christ. Content. Aspect number two is uh, they identified with this Latin word ascensus, which is not so hard for us to see. We would maybe bring the English word out ascent, not climbing something, but agree to something ascent. So the second aspect would be this idea of ascent. Uh, we approve. We agree. So here's what you have. You give me the content and I say yes and amen to it. I agree with it. I approve of it. Now, we might be prone to say, well, that's all the faith really is. It's a content and an ascent. That sounds good to me. But the reformers were smarter than that they realized that you could actually have content and assent and still not have biblical saving faith. And what they understood were things like in James 2.19, where James actually talks about the demons. And he says, listen, they have the right content about God. They know. 
And they agree that it is true. But they're missing something else. Let me, let me show this to you. James 2.19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What he's bringing out here is that, man, it is good that you have content about God and his word and you embrace, you believe, you assent to those things. That is good. God is one. God is gracious. God is all these other things. You know what? The demons know that, too. But there is something that distinguishes their faith from ours. And that's what's brought out in that last piece that he says there. You see, the demons don't believe and delight and rest and and find their joy there and trust God and lean in on him. No, they believe those things are true about him and they shudder. There's a distaste. There's a revulsion. There's a hatred for what they know to be true about him. And so the reformers say, we've got to add a third aspect. We don't just want demonic faith. That ain't no good. And so content and dissent, good, but add to it. Now, third aspect, what they called fiducia, or what we would call, sum up with the English word, trust. Trust. Here we have the idea not just of knowing that things are right and agreeing uh, or not just knowing things and then agreeing that they are right, but actually saying, okay, because I know those things and because I see and agree that they are right, I'm going to lay my life in on that. I'm going to say yes and amen. I'm going to come near that. I'm going to put personal trust. I'm going to rely on this God who is revealed to me in his word. It's a personal embrace of it, even a delight in it we know we agree we trust that's the biblical understanding of faith that's what faith is and that's what these disciples then are asking jesus to increase help help us we get your content we heard you seven times in a day forgive we agree, I suppose, that that would be good if, if we were to follow that because we know God is gracious and things. But man, we are struggling to trust you for it. We're struggling to go all the way and walk that out. We still want to kind of go back into our self-preservation mode when we're hurt. We're still wanting to kind of fall into that spiral of, of, of vengeance, an eye for an eye. We still want to get, you're going to have to increase our faith if we're going to go all the way and trust you in this. And walk out some of those things we're called to elsewhere, like loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us and blessing those who curse us. That, that's what this is. Increase my Faith. So second, then now we get to this idea of the gift of faith, the gift of faith. So having a better sense of what faith is, I think we're ready to deal with the request from these apostles itself. Verse five, look at it just one more time. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. What I want to bring out for us here at this point is that truth, which is clearly, I think, standing behind this request, and it is no doubt plainly implied in it. And that is that faith ultimately is a gift from God. 
Now think about it with me. The request from these apostles that the Lord increase their faith is nonsensical. It it doesn't compute if, in fact, Jesus can't influence, encourage, increase their faith. If, in fact, faith is something that you and I have to, must conjure up in and of ourselves, this request makes no sense. The request is, Jesus, I need you to believe in you. And if he doesn't have anything to do with it, the request falls flat. But I think in scripture we see plainly that he does have something to do with our faith. That faith is in fact a gift. And he can and does increase it. It's really the same sort of thing we see with that father I reference often in Mark 9. I love this scene. There's this guy who has this kid and his kid's been pillaged and plagued by demons since his childhood we read and jesus rolls up on in the you know village or town where he is and this guy catches wind of it sees jesus and we read this in uh what did i say mark 9 yeah mark 9 verse 22 he says if you can do anything have compassion on us and help us i love this jesus said to him if you can The guy goes, if you can, please do. And Jesus goes, if you can, man, you know who you're talking to. If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And the man hears that. He looks at his boy, looks at Jesus, and he goes, I believe. But help me with my unbelief. In other words, I want to believe. I, I hear about what you've done elsewhere, but I am, str- I am in the throes of doubt right now. I am struggling. Can you help me? Can you, in other words, increase my faith? I wonder if you've ever sung that old hymn, Come Thou Found. I love it, and I think immediately, at least for me, the lines that always jump out, when I think of come thou found, the lines I, I, I'm always drawn to are those ones that come near the very end of that hymn, and they go like this. I wonder if they have struck a chord with you as well. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. Am I the only one that loves that? Am I the only one that lives in that space where I'm going? My heart is prone to wander. Man, I'm always going after this and after that. And what is the deal? God, if I'm going to make it to glory, you got to take this wandering heart of mine and seal it. You've got to keep it. You've got to keep me trusting. You've got to keep me believing. I know we're saved by faith. And if that faith is requiring the strength of my hand, it's over. But if it's your hand 
reaching on me, upholding me. And in through my faith, there's hope even for a wandering sinner like me. I love it. And I wonder if you love it too. It's essentially this idea. Increase my faith. Faith is a gift. I need you, Jesus, to believe in you, Jesus. That's the idea. Now, there are a number of ways I could try to make the case for this from Scripture, that faith is a gift, that we do need to cry out to Christ for it, and He is the one who ultimately gives it, sustains it, increases it. One of the ways that I wanted to make the case, at least here up front, is to just kind of come at it from the, the, the standpoint of these apostles who we see in our text here. Um, I imagine if I were to ask you to list out some of the Christians um, from history that have some of the, the, the greatest faith. I mean, we may talk about the Spurgeons and we may talk about the Luthers and we may talk about the Augustines and other things. But no doubt you have to go all the way back to the guys who started the whole thing, namely these apostles, right? These guys who we read in Acts 17, verse 6, they turn the world upside down. Because they're going hard for God. And they're expanding. We're here because of what they did. The great faith. I mean, they're expanding the, the, the gospel, the, the kingdom of God through the advance of the gospel things at the expense of their own lives. Tradition would, would, would have it that maybe all, but at least the great majority were martyred for this. Certainly all were persecuted radically. And so, if we're going to talk about those in Christianity who have the greatest faith, we've got to start with these guys, I would think. Whatever else these men were, certainly we could say they were men of great faith. And yet, when we read the Gospels carefully, we come to find that this has not always been the case, right? (laughs) In fact, if just kind of cut to the chase... Uh, The one unfortunate thing that could be said of all of them, if you read carefully, is that on the night Jesus was betrayed, at the time Jesus needed the most, every single one of these guys fell away. None of these guys had the faith required to sustain and stand with Christ in that place. Now, To be clear, I am not saying that I know when or how the disciples got saved. I don't know. Okay, there's some mystery involved in when uh, when they got born again. I'm not going to conjecture on on these sorts of things. Perhaps it was a bit earlier than uh, than the cross and Calvary. Perhaps it was after. uh, Not quite sure. Somewhere in between. But I am saying that clear as day on the pages of the gospel records is the fact that they did not have the ability to believe in and of themselves in spite of their own self-confidence, to the contrary. That's why, let me show you this. Let me just kind of show you how this plays out. We read in Matthew 26, verses 31 to 35. Jesus has just kind of closed up the Last Supper. They sang a hymn, and he leads them out to the Mount of Olives. The, the shadow of the cross is just laying thick on him at this point, about to be betrayed, about to be crucified. And he has this discussion 
with his, with his inner circle, with these guys, these men of great faith. <laughs> and he says this, verse 31, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, it's going to be worst of all for you, buddy. (laughs) Truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you and catch this. All the disciples said the same. Never. We're here to the end. Bring it on. Faith is in me. We've got this. Right? That's the idea. Mm, You can feel the testosterone in these apostles. Yes. I just say testosterone in a sermon. I'm sorry. You look at your son like, we'll talk about it later. But Jesus knows better. Jesus knows better. He knows what's truly in man. When the great crowd shows up, we watch how this plays out. Judas is there at the front of them. They've come with swords and clubs and chains to lay hold of Jesus. And we read in verse 56, just a few verses down, then all the disciples left him and fled. We will never deny you left him and fled just moments later. And Peter, we know later that night, would deny him three times, just as Jesus had said. But their faithlessness doesn't stop here. I'm just going to kind of run through a bit of this. It's wonderful. It's very encouraging. Uh, three days have passed now and uh, since Jesus' crucifixion and burial. And just as he had predicted many times during his earthly ministry, and even again there in Matthew 26, 32, if you notice, he said, you're all going to fall away, but I'm going to rise, and I'm going to go ahead of you, and I'm going to call you little rascals back to me, and I'm going to help you out. Three days have passed since his death. The disciples are all out of sorts. But here's what we read. Check this out. This is now Luke 24, 1 through 11. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise." And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb. They told all these things to the 11, the 11 apostles and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary and the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. 
Jesus from his own mouth at least three times, as we'll see in the Gospel of Luke. I will suffer. I will be rejected. I will be killed. But I will rise. Explicit, clear as day. They come saying what Jesus said all along is true. It has happened. And they go, ridiculous. Never. Come on. You ladies have lost touch with reality. So Jesus says, all right, we're going to take this into my own nail pierced hands now. Jesus himself shows up to them while they're gathered together, cowering behind wall and door. And even though they're looking at the resurrected Lord himself, still we read they're struggling to believe. So he says to them in verse 38 of Luke 24, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. That it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. He's right there and they're going, no, couldn't be. Couldn't be. We watched you die. It's over. It's just beginning, guys. And of course, who could forget doubting Thomas? who, as it turns out, I guess, was not there when Jesus initially showed up to them in that moment. And so here's what we read uh, in John 20, verses 24 and 25. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Now, these guys are kind of in on, okay, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his hand, I will never believe and we know of course that Jesus shows up to Thomas and he does encourage his faith in those moments but man there is one profound mark I was like why did Matthew include this if not to drive home this point I don't know Uh, but there is this point that at the very end of all of this this reassurance and Jesus doing these things. We come to the day where he's going to ascend to the father. This is Matthew 28 verse 17. I'm going to read now. He's ascending to the father. He's saying goodbye. He's like floating up in the clouds or whatever. And we read this in verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Like Jesus is going up to the father and some are going I just don't know about this. Like maybe I just had some weird pizza the night before and this is all just kind of hallucinating. I'm not sure. I'm going to need a little bit more if I'm going to believe here. And you just got to think all the stuff they had seen through the years with Christ, his power, his miracle, all the words they had heard. Listen, this is what's going to happen. All the Old Testament that foreshadowed and prophesied these very things and the stuff is happening to go. I just don't know. Idle tales, ridiculous. No. And so we're left at the end of all this with the question, I think, how did they come to believe? I mean, how do we get from this sort of waffling and back and forth, and I'm not sure, to the radical power we see them walk out in the book of Acts? And the apostles I'm talking about at the beginning, the pillars of the faith laying down their lives. Were they perfect? No. And we watch them flounder and and struggle and deal with sin. But man, there is something, there's something that happened. 
What accounts for that? How did they come to believe like that, to where they were willing and ready to lay down their lives for Christ, when after all this indisputable evidence, they were still struggling? Couldn't quite get themselves to go forward with it. Now, of course, I could point to the day of Pentecost when the Spirit falls, and and that certainly seems to be a day when everything changes, right? Uh, Jesus would even say, don't go out and on mission yet. Let the Spirit get in the mix, because you guys are just going to mess it up. And when the Spirit falls, they're filled with more than just tongues. They're filled with faith. So the Peter who denied, you know, knowing Jesus in the face of a servant girl stands up immediately and just proclaims to the masses. What is that? Peter didn't do that. That's an answer to the prayer. Increase my faith. That's something that comes from the spirit. That's the help of God. There's another place I would actually rather take us for the answer at this point, though, and uh, it's in Luke 22 is back when Jesus was talking with Peter about his forthcoming denials. Um, Luke tells us a bit more than Matthew or Mark about what was said. And I love this. Luke 22, 31 to 32. This sustains me. This gives hope to a sinner like me with a wandering heart like I have. I hope it encourages you. Jesus, in the midst of talking about Peter's denials and things, says this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter's faith doesn't fail. The other apostles' faith doesn't fail because Christ won't allow it. You you catch that? Not because they could keep the faith. Peter goes on to say, "I, I got this. And we watch what happens. It's a way of driving home the point. Our faith remains because Jesus keeps it. Because he's interceding for it. Because Christ is upholding it and seeing to its increase. Because faith is not something ultimately of me. It is a gift of Almighty God. Now, I'm going to rattle off very quickly some other scriptures. Because I know some of us may be I'm not convinced. I'm not sure. This is honestly the clear teaching everywhere. Do with it what we want, but it's right here on the face of Scripture. And and I find encouragement in it, though I know there are some troubling things like, well, you know, and then implications like, well, wait a minute, what, what's my part in it? And what about people that don't believe? And I understand all of that. And it's challenging. I'd love to talk to you about it. But the bottom line is, we're seeing here, and I'll show you, faith is this gift. He gives it, He grants it, He sustains it, He keeps it. And without His intervention, It's not in us. This is why we read. Let me rattle off here. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard the preaching of Paul and Barnabas, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. 
Did you catch the, the logic, the flow? It's not the other way around like we often try to make it, which is, and those who believed were then appointed to eternal life. No, it, it, it moves in the other direction. Those who were appointed to eternal life, when they heard the gospel proclaimed by Paul and Barnabas, God opened up their ears and their eyes so that they would see in the gospel the glory of God. In the face of Jesus, light started coming through, and it wasn't because they were just smarter than the rest. It's because God was moving on them, and He was granting the gift of faith. So I got saved think I was smart enough? You think if the, if the disciples couldn't see all that they saw of Jesus, hear all that they, they heard of Jesus, and they look and go, I'm still not sure, idle tales, that you and I just reading a book could go, yeah, that makes sense. No way. God is opening eyes in this room. God is gracious to us. Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What? The measure of faith that God has us. I need God to believe in God. And if there's faith in God, he has granted that measure of faith to me. In mercy. First Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. The natural person just means the person in and of their own strength, as they are by nature in the fallen nature. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is just another way of saying everything I've been saying up to this point. He's saying, listen, you cannot understand, receive, perceive, accept the things of the Spirit if you don't have the Spirit. What? Our hearts are too hard. Our eyes are too blind. God has to move. This is why we come later in that same letter, 1 Corinthians 12 now, verse 3, and Paul says this, No one can say, Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means if you see a brother or sister bending their knee in submission and devotion to Jesus, calling Him Lord, receiving Him as Savior and treasure... You can be sure the Spirit is at work in their life. Natural man doesn't bend that knee. He fights tooth and claw to the end unless God intervenes in grace. Philippians 1, 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should Believe in Him. What? (laughs) It just says it all over the place. You're just left going, scratch my head. His grace. It's been granted to you that you should believe in Him. 1 Peter 1, 3-5. I'm almost done in case you're worried. (laughs) 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Did you catch that? I tried to emphasize it, but here's the idea. It may be your faith, but it is God's power that is upholding that faith. Hallelujah. Guarding you through it and keeping you in it to the end. That's the logic. And that honestly is the greatest grace of all. Now I'm going to end with what perhaps you thought I would begin with. And that is Ephesians 2, 8, where Paul says this, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This whole salvation by grace through faith thing. Put a bow on it. Some nice paper. It's a gift. You just read Ephesians 2 and tell me how else you're supposed to read that. Because he just got done saying we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And God made us alive. And he keeps us and he helps us walk in works prepared by him beforehand. It's a gift through and through. So, there you are on Monday morning, I hope, with the scriptures open in your lap. And you're reading. You're reading perhaps of the radical forgiveness that Jesus is calling you to show those who have sinned against you. You're reading perhaps of his commitment to even in your fiercest trials work for your good. You're reading perhaps that his rules are sweet and a delight. and Wow, how amazing and rewarding it would be to follow them. You get the content. You may even agree that God is right and good in what he says, but you are struggling to trust. You're struggling Like if this is what it means to be a disciple, if this is what you say you're doing, if this is what you want me doing, and where all this is going, I'm not sure I'm there. You hear the hiss of the devil's voice. Did God actually say, what do you do in those moments? What do you do? That's the whole point of this sermon. What do you do? Okay. Okay, my man. Somebody listen. In light of our text and all that we've looked at this morning, let's be clear. You don't try to muster up faith in and of yourself. You don't stand with Peter. Oh, well, no, I got this. We got this. You're not doing like, you know, like the spiritual reps in the morning. We got pumping up the, you know, whatever. No. In light of our text and all that we've seen, you want to know what you do? You get on your face. You lift up your hands to the Son of God. The one who was crucified, raised for you. The one who Hebrews tells us lives to make intercession for you, just like he did for Peter. Lives to make intercession for you. And you plead with him. 
I believe. Help me today, now, with my unbelief. Increase my faith. And as you pray and as you wrestle and as you fight for faith and you call on the only one who truly walked this out, his spirit will fall. And your faith will increase. But it won't be you. It's him. That's the point. Jesus is the one who, you don't think it was a battle for him on the cross? Forgive those who sin against me. Don't hold it against them, Lord. He's the only one who could walk this out. You don't think it was hard for him to see that God was up to good when he's in Gethsemane? Not my will, but yours be done. But please, not this. But I know you're good. I hold firm. You don't think it was hard to hold to the rules of God and always feel like they were? When he's in the wilderness and the devil says, just make some bread, bro. Come on. What's up with your daddy? This is abuse. Man doesn't live by bread alone, by the words that come forth. He's the one. Who has accomplished this? He's the one who held firm. And he's the one who by his spirit grants you that same faith. That's why we say all praise be to the author and finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your mercy to us. That you not only uh, accomplish the content of our faith in the gospel, but you also move into my heart and help me believe, receive, trust. You keep me in it. God, if you don't take this heart and seal it, I don't make it to the courts above. So we thank you. And right now it is our prayer in the midst of this warfare, in the midst of this fight for faith, that you would increase that faith in us. Help us, Holy Spirit. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Father. Come. Let us wage the good warfare. We do it for your glory, by your grace. In your name we pray. Amen.